This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. Great to have you with us again for another broadcast. Good to see some of Congress getting behind Trump's lawsuit. We'll see how that all plays out. But right now, an awful lot of focus needs to be on what's going on in Georgia. A lot of people are noting that Georgia is ground zero for politics at the moment. And the political fight between right and left is taking place in earnest. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, But I want to talk a little bit about this Georgia Democrat Senate candidate, Reverend Raphael Warnock. If you had watched that debate recently between Senator Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock, you saw the big distinction between those two candidates. What I find very interesting is he refers to himself as a pro-choice pastor, which is really weird to me. It's just really weird to me. And especially when you consider the abortion rate in the African-American community, if people were thinking straight, they would understand that it's flat out genocide. It's genocide against babies of every single race and ethnicity, but especially in the black community, it's just completely out of control and it's wrong. And I greatly admire wonderful black pro-life activists like Alveda King and so many other people who stand up and say, this is, this is terrible. If you care about the black community, and you care about black lives, start here. And that's absolutely right. But he is under fire now for a video that has surfaced. In fact, two videos that have surfaced. He was a youth pastor years ago at a church in Harlem and a video had surfaced of him being, you know, Fidel Castro spoke there. I mean, like you're thinking of people, who can we bring in? I'm sure you've experienced this at your church. You know, we want to bring in a guest speaker. We want to bring somebody in who will really edify the congregation, maybe a guest pastor who can come in, maybe preach a Sunday night service or even a Sunday morning service. Maybe we want to bring in some kind of special music group, some Christian choir or something like that from out of town. They bring in Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro, who is a an absolutely murderous dictator and a million Cubans plus fled Cuba to get away from this guy because he was so so evil. And so you have that. And then you also have Reverend Raphael Warnock in a video praising Castro. Now, I want to play some of this for you. But before I do, I want to hearken back to this debate moment between Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock, in which Warnock slams her for being rich and you know privileged and all the rest. But she has a pretty good comeback. This is cut one. Kelly Leffler's out of touch. She's thinking about people who are like her. And uh, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that she wants to make money. I just think you shouldn't use the people's seat to enrich yourself. You ought to use the people's seat to represent the people. I'd like to respond. Please do. Look, these are more lies from radical liberal Raphael Warnock, someone that has invited Fidel Castro, a murderous dictator, into his own church, someone that has celebrated anti-American, anti-Semite Jeremiah Wright. He has also said that police officers are gangsters and thugs and refuse to apologize for it. He said that you can't serve God and the military. He has actually made sure that we know who he is in his own words. Those aren't my words. 
Not only that, but in his writings and his teachings, he repeatedly praised Marxism, as Loeffler pointed out, and the redistribution of income, and he refused to denounce Marxist ideology. Why does that matter? Well, because let's recall the political ideology of Fidel Castro, communist. Now, this puts a little bit of a background into what you're going to hear next, and you're going to hear exactly what Raphael Warnock thought of Fidel Castro. This was after Castro died in 2016, just a couple of days later. Listen to cut two. We pray for the people of Cuba in this moment. We remember Fidel Castro, whose legacy is complex. Don't let anybody tell you a simple story. Life usually isn't very simple. His legacy is complex, kind of like America's legacy is complex. While we focus on political prisoners in Cuba, you saw the folks standing here this morning. If some people get slapped on the hand for the same crime and others go to federal prison, then we too have our own political prisons. Because politics more than the crime politics of race and class, then in that sense, many of us have sisters and brothers who are political prisoners. We're about to pray to a man who was a political prisoner. Oh, man. Where do you even begin with this? Let's walk backwards. First, you're not praying to a political prisoner. Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God, and he could have called down 10,000 angels to save himself, and he didn't do it, and he was put up to die as a common criminal because he claimed to be God. That's what it was all about. I'm not saying there were not politics involved, but come on, pick up a Bible and read it. Jesus was not a political prisoner. Walking backward on that, comparing Castro to America by saying his legacy is complex the way America's legacy is complex enrages me. It enrages me to hear somebody compare communist Cuba to the United States of America, the freest country, the country that has afforded the most opportunity to the black community of any nation in the world being compared to a nightmare of a communist prisoner country. I mean, and political prisoners in Cuba were there innocently. How in the world can you compare that to people who are in prison here in the United States? They're not in there for being political prisoners. That may happen in years to come, but it's not happening right now. You may have some false convictions and people who were sent to jail who were not guilty and DNA evidence you know, finds out later that they were innocent and they're freed. And those those are heartbreaking cases. And it's not that there's no need for political reform, but come on, that is not comparable to all the thousands of people who died under Castro just because they would not agree with communism. I mean, you can go to the Cuba archive and you can look at all the victims of Castro. There are over 11,000 people who are listed in that archive there. So, you know, to compare the torture and the murder and the show trials of Castro to anything that's going on in the United States is just reprehensible. Jake Tapper, though, weeks before the video resurfaced, had a conversation with Warnock about Castro. Now, listen to what he said a few weeks ago. This is cut three. Senator Leffler keeps mentioning on the campaign trail an incident from 1995 when you were a youth pastor at a New York church which hosted a speech by Fidel Castro. Now, you've said you had nothing to do with that invitation, but just to clarify for our viewers, did you attend the speech and do you understand why there are so many people who view Castro as a, as a murderous tyrant and, and not someone to be celebrated? I'll tell you what I understand. I understand why uh, Kelly Leffler is trying to change the subject. 
I was a youth pastor. I had nothing to do with that program. Uh, I did not make any decisions uh, regarding the program. I've never met uh, the Cuban dictator. And so uh, I'm not connected to him. I'll tell you whose names are on the ballot. Raphael Warnock and Kelly Leffler. This race uh, is not about anybody else. And so while she tries to tie me to these personalities that I don't know and seeks the endorsement of a fifth century warmonger named Attila the Hun, I'll be focused on health care in Georgia. Oh, good grief. Yeah, she's trying to dodge and change the subject. It sounds to me like you're trying to dodge and change the subject because you didn't walk out as the youth pastor. And we all just heard that audio of you praising Castro. Here's how it followed up with uh, Jake Tapper and Warnock. Cut four. I get that this is a distraction, but do you understand why people would be appalled by anyone celebrating Fidel Castro? Well, absolutely. And and I never have. Uh, What I am putting forward in this race is American values. Listen, in in no place other than America is my story even possible. Uh, I'm proud of my country. And what makes me love America is that in spite of whatever challenges we have, there's always the uh, path to redress our concerns to make the country better. I, I grew up in public housing and here I am running for the United States Senate against the wealthiest member of Congress. I understand the struggles of ordinary people, and that's what this race is about. Okay. Well, we're supposed to ignore the fact that you compared communist Cuba to the United States and tried to make them analogous. You love this country. You just want to make it a little bit better. You have to compare and contrast some of what these politicians say sometimes in order to delineate the truth, because, boy, are they willing to bend it when they're with a certain audience. And and you can't get away with that as much with the Internet now. We have a lot to come here on Janet Meffer today, so stick around. We'll be right back. Did you know that Bible-less believers around the world are praying to receive their very own copy of God's Word? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send those Bibles today. Hear from Meng in Vietnam. If they don't have Bible, how they can find the truth? Because the Bible like a map to bring them to find the truth. And many people, they are really uh, hungry for the Word of God and then they need the Bible. Nepo is a pastor in Ghana praying for Bibles for former Muslim radicals now following Christ. Anna was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Albania, but her godly witness changed his heart and now he needs a Bible. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by terrorists in Mexico, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with others. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word? $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10 and because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 yes word 800 yes word 800 yes word or there's a banner to click at janetmeffer.com dan steiner here with freeborn ministries and this is my personal invitation for you to join my wife valerie and i on december 13th for celebrate life a live christmas online benefit for unborn children many of you have supported and saved the lives of preborn babies through this radio session this is an opportunity friend for you to see a preborn center in action for you to see moms and babies who have chosen life, to meet some of the directors. We're gonna have Matthew West to hear Christmas music from Matthew. 
an opportunity for you to do a watch party in your home, bring your friends together, and celebrate life that has been saved as a result of your generosity. And friends, on this broadcast, we're going to have a live ultrasound as well for you to see like many of you have supported. So please join us on December 13th, 7 p.m. Eastern time at preborn.com, preborn.com on December 13th for Celebrate Life, a live Christmas online benefit for preborn babies. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. As we know, the balance of power in the Senate will be decided on January 5th when Georgia voters decide who to send to Washington in the runoff election there. Republican Senator David Perdue is up against Democrat John Ossoff, while Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler is defending her seat against Democrat and Reverend Raphael Warnock, who has called himself a pro-choice pastor. Now, the stakes are really high. And as we know, Georgia is also under the microscope in the lawsuit that Texas has filed at the Supreme Court over the presidential election results, the suit that it's now backed up by nearly 20 other states. So what is happening on the ground in Georgia right now to mobilize conservatives and get them to the polls? We're going to get an update from Noah Weinrich, who is the press secretary for Heritage Action for America. Noah, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Thank you. The runoff, of course, is very, very critical. What is your ground game? What's going on right now in Georgia to get the vote out? That's a great question. Um, I am actually in a neighborhood in Fulton County right now. Uh, just finished knocking about 50 doors. We have all hands on deck. Uh, Heritage Action and many other groups are mobilizing to tell voters in Georgia about conservative policies, what's at stake if we lose the Senate, um, and how this election really is going to decide what the next two, four, and even six years look like in the Senate and in America. Very good. What are some of those conservative issues that you are stressing to people as you're going door to door? You know, some of our top issues are... um, socialism. Obviously, that's a huge one for people. Uh, They don't realize it's on the ballot, but it really is. Uh, There's a reason that Bernie Sanders is backing Raphael Warnock, one of the candidates on the ballot. Um, But we're also telling them about other issues like court packing, the filibuster, the Green New Deal. These are things that the far left, including candidates in Georgia, have promised to pass and push through if they uh, they win on January 5th. And you know, folks have concerns about um, election integrity. Um, some people don't even know the election is happening. <laughs> and so we've been informing people, you know, uh, if you don't show up and vote on January 5th, uh, if you decide to stay at home or if you fail to register or get out to vote, then, you know, that's what the far left wants you to do. And that's how they're going to succeed. And, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer said it himself. Now we take Georgia, then we change the world. Mm. And that's their plan. Yeah. And that's what's at stake. And that's why groups like Heritage Action are on the ground contacting millions of voters informing them of the consequences of this election. Right. Now, you mentioned election integrity, and of course, that's become a big issue. It's the issue, you know, involved uh, that's involved the Trump administration and pushing back so hard nationally. But this is also something that's come up in recent weeks because you've had some of the lawyers, for example, discourage Georgia voters from going to the polls because they can't assure election integrity. There's been some infighting on that issue. What are you saying to people who are actually concerned about election integrity? I mean, you can understand why they'd have some questions, but at the same time, you don't want to not vote at a time like this. That's exactly right. There have certainly been concerns. um, And, you know, this, we predicted this would happen with vote by mail. Um, There are, there are concerns involved. Um, It's not the most secure system, but the truth is that, uh, you know, we're working to fix it. 
know, groups like Heritage Action are sending poll supervisors, sending um, election workers and lawyers down to make sure that every legal vote is counted. Um, And in addition, if you're worried about election fraud, then it doesn't make a lick of sense to stay home on January 5th. So the far left just last year pushed H.R. 1 through the House. This is Nancy Pelosi's election bill. It would provide more federal control over elections. That means control by Democrats and unelected bureaucrats. Um, It would loosen voter ID laws. It would mandate same-day registration, things like that that would make elections less secure. And so that's what's at stake here. Um, In addition, President Trump himself said on last Saturday that no matter what's important to get out the vote on January 5th. Uh, And, you know, that's from the man himself. And I think we agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Well, talk about the balance of power in the Senate, because if you have the Democrats winning both those races, it would create a tie. But of course, if Biden and Kamala Harris prevail and that all works in their favor, then she would be the tiebreaker. So that can't be a good thing for conservatives. That's exactly right. Um, you know, if uh, if Biden is inaugurated on January 20th and uh, and Republicans have lost both seats, that means that Democrats effectively have the House because Kamala Harris, the vice president, would then be the tiebreaker. And he, even if President Trump is inaugurated, you know, if these lawsuits prevail, then it's important for, for conservatives to have a wide margin yeah. because there's always folks that, uh, that are going to flip or are under pressure of flipping. You know, you can't assume that folks like, um, you know, Senator Murkowski or Collins or others like that are going to vote with conservatives. Right. And so it's important to have uh, the most conservatives in the Senate as possible. We've been talking about Georgia as the firewall of freedom. No matter what happens with the president, um, it's important to have Georgia stay conservative. Well, it's interesting. I've been looking at some polling that I haven't been able to find a lot of recent polling on these races, other than the assertion that these races are very tight. What are you hearing in that regard? How tight are the races uh, from, from the ground there in Georgia? Are you hearing much about that, how close these races are right now? Um, we are hearing that they're tight, um, and it really all depends on turnout. You know, if people decide to, if conservatives decide to stay home on January 5th or stay home for early voting before that, um, then there's a scenario where the Democrats take one or both seats. Um, it's really too, it's really too close to call, you know, uh, Purdue won in November, but he only won by, you know, two points and he was under the 50% he needed to avoid this runoff. Yeah. So that's why we have these, because it is close. Um, But we're really talking to voters and making sure that they are informed on the policies. And we think that if they are informed, if they truly know what's at stake, then they're going to do the right thing. And they're going to vote for conservative policies. They're going to vote against socialism. Um, You know, our T-shirts, the new Heritage Action T-shirts say, the road to socialism doesn't run through Georgia. Hmm. And we know that's a popular message. Folks don't like socialism. They don't like defunding the police. And if they know that that's what's at stake, then that's going to change the game. Yeah, well, you guys had talked about the fact that exit polls had showed the top issue for Georgia voters on the right was the economy and second was crime and safety. Now, if you're concerned about both of those things, it seems you should be very concerned about socialism and about the agenda of the left that they're becoming more brazen about. Raphael Warnock in particular has come under fire in recent days for this unearthing of the video in which he was praising Fidel Castro. Is that having any effect on Georgia voters saying, wait a second, this is getting a little out of hand at this point. Uh, I think so. And I think people are waking up to the fact that 
um, both candidates, but particularly Raphael Warnock, have said some really radical things in the past. They've said things against, you know, Warnock has said things against the military, against the police. Um, that's the subject of our new digital ad campaign. Um, he said some radical things and he supported some radical policies. He's not running as a radical. He is pretending like he's a moderate, um, trying to be, appeal to the moderates or even conservatives of Georgia, especially in the suburbs. But when you dig in, he said some very extreme things and he supported some extreme things. Yes. Well, what about the fight on the ground right now from the left? Because I've been reading about some of this, you know, this group called the Voter Protection Project is seeking to bolster Ossoff and Warnock. They've spent about a million dollars in the Georgia Senate runoffs. Is there a big disparity right now, Noah, between the fight uh, between conservatives and liberals to get the message out to voters? I mean, how intense is the fight right now? It's very intense. These are probably going to be the most expensive Senate races of all time. Um, Groups on both sides have poured hundreds of millions of dollars in. Um, Republicans are so far outspending Democrats. They've spent about $240 million on just TV buys, and Democrats have done about two-thirds of that. So it's very intense. These are races that uh, people across the nation care about. Stacey Abrams' project... um, you know, in the years prior to this, has registered, I think, about 600,000 new voters. Hmm. Of course, as we've seen in recent weeks, not all of those were eligible. Um, <laughs> there were some out of state, some too young to vote, some dead. Um, <laughs> I think you're going to see more lawsuits about that. But the fact remains, that is a lot of voters. And they've built a very strong ground game. And that's one of the reasons why Georgia is such a tough fight, because they have done the ground game. Yeah. Um, as you saw in states around the country, this election, things didn't go uh, far left. A lot of places actually flipped red because conservatives had a ground game. They were knocking doors and the left was not. Um, but groups like Stacey Abrams, um, you know, they organized well, um, you know, for the wrong cause, but they organized. And that's one of the reasons why Georgia is such a tough fight right now. You're right. And turnout is everything, just like you said. When you mentioned before that you're going to have poll watchers and you're going to have some people overseeing the integrity of the election, I I mean, is that secured that you're going to be able, the conservatives, the GOP, will be able to have better access to what's going on on election night than they did during the presidential election? Or or what is that a sure thing, in other words? That's a great question. Uh, None of these are sure things, but the fact is the more people you have there, the better chances you have. It's a lot harder to push six people out of the room than one person out of the room. And that's why we have people at every level. We don't only have poll watchers, but we have poll workers. We registered hundreds of poll workers up to and through the last election. And those are folks who uh, it's tougher to push out of the room. And that's why we have workers, watcher, and attorneys. So at every level, we have people there. Um, They are working the polls. And they're watching the polls to make sure that nothing sketchy happens. And then if somebody is pushed out of the room or if the watcher reports something, then we have some volunteer attorneys working with us and other groups to help um, go through the legal process and make sure that uh, justice is done. And so nothing is guaranteed, but we are working uh, the best we can. And we we feel good about um, 
we feel good about January. Well, very good. And I hope they'll all have their cell phone cameras at the ready, too, because those have come in handy during the discussion about what happened on election night. Very important runoff in Georgia coming up again on January 5th. And we are very grateful for the hard work of a Heritage Heritage Action for America. Noah Weinrich with us. You can check out more at heritageaction.com slash Georgia. Noah, keep up the good work. Thank you so much for the update. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thank you. And we'll be back on Janet Mufford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Are you ready for the Liberation Methodist Connection? It's the name of a radical new denomination that has just launched. And here is part of what this group, which is also known as LMX, says on its website. We are journeying toward a new way of being followers of Christ that refutes the imbalance of powers, principalities, and privileges that has plagued Methodism, colonialism, white supremacy, economic injustices, patriarchy, sexism, clericalism, ableism, ageism, trans transphobia, and heteronormativity. Sounds fun, doesn't it? As organizers said during their first online meeting, correct doctrine is less important to the new denomination than correct action. Now, of course, that's a huge problem because it's just the latest development in the United Methodist Church, which has been fighting inwardly over the issue of homosexuality for many years now. They were, in fact, supposed to take up a proposed plan to split the denomination in 2020, but of course, COVID-19 got in the way. But what does this new LMX denomination indicate about the future of Methodism and what will ultimately happen to the United Methodist Church? We're going to talk about it now with Alan O. Morris, who's an author and executive director of Concerned Methodists, a ministry that affirms the Bible as God's word, Christ as Lord, and the Orthodox Christian beliefs of their Wesleyan heritage. Alan, it is great to have you with us again. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's talk, uh, great to talk with you again, Janet. Thank you. It is wonderful to talk to you as well. What do you make of this LMX group? It, some of the stuff they're saying on this website, I don't even think I could make it up as a parody. It's so out there. Right. Well, uh, in a way, it does not surprise us from two different dimensions. One is uh, whenever the uh, leaders and some of the uh, people in the Methodist Church uh, basically subscribe to theological liberalism, then what you do is you lose the Bible as your uh, as your guide in life, as your compass. And uh, then you're subject to being open to any kind of strange ideas. And uh, the second thing, too, in uh, reading this, we have traced the influence of liberation theology since the 1980s when it was uh, in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And when you combine both of these together, uh, then you come up with this here. 
Well, you're right about that. And I've even read that they've said, well, actually on the website, they've said they are building on Methodist theology with different kinds of expressions of liberation theologies. And of course, that goes back to Catholicism in Latin America in the 50s and 60s. For listeners who don't know much about liberation theology, what is it and and how is it kind of serving as the baseline for this LMX group? Well, uh, what liberation theology does, it tries to define the gospel in uh, terms of a Marxist paradigm. And, uh, you know, we know that the gospel is centered on uh, the fact that we are all sinners and we need the salvation that's offered by Jesus Christ. But liberation theology goes in and it and it and it tries to speak to judge uh, justice. And I use that in quotes. Uh, economic justice and and uh, you know all kinds of justice, and that God's kingdom can be uh, created here on on the earth. It pits the uh, class uh, uses class warfare to pit the uh, so-called uh, poor people, the under under uh, privileged class, against the uh, the ruling classes. You know the the rich people. Yes. And so and so. Uh, you know, it, it uh, uses the dissatisfaction by uh, some of the poor, poor classes in Latin America, again, to just, uh, you know, pit them against the uh, leadership and those who are in the upper classes. Right. So people need to understand the Marxist underpinning to this theology, which, as you mentioned, has been around quite a while. But it's right in line with what we're seeing in the culture right now. One wonders if this LMX is saying we're not really about theology, we're about correct action. Why do they even need to be a denomination? I mean, why don't you go become part of Black Lives Matter or join Antifa? Maybe they're not violent, but some kind of other sect group to accomplish these goals. What is it about needing to form a denomination to do these things? It doesn't seem like God really has much to do with any of it. Well, it really doesn't. And we know that Satan is the author of confusion. But I believe at this time in the history of our United Methodist Church and how we're going through a period of transition and possible separation in the coming year or two, that it it just provides fertile ground for creation of a new, quote, denomination like this. And so I can see how that this would have, that the atmosphere in our denomination would have spawned a, a movement such as this. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I want to get into that. Going back to some of what they've said here, this LMX group on the website, they, they've said they seek to embrace the full participation of all who are living out their God-given identities and expressions, including people of all gender expressions. That's not God-given. Uh, sexual identities, races and ethnicities, mental and physical abilities. But then when you go through this list of who they're inviting to have full participation with them, they mention things like, of course, the gender stuff the LGBT stuff, but they mention other things like housing status, uh, whether or not you're monogamous or non-monogamous, that doesn't matter to them, your hair color, I'm not really sure why that would matter. And another thing that I hadn't seen mentioned uh, previously, but uh, in a denominational statement, is your use of drugs. So apparently LMX doesn't care if you're using drugs, presumably illegal drugs, Come on, you know, we'll welcome you and we'll just embrace you. I mean, this is madness. I don't know I don't know what could possibly come of this. Well, I don't either. And and uh, getting back to what I had said earlier about when you lose the Bible as your authority and uh that that's a compass in life, then it's like you're on the ocean and uh in a ship 
uh, you're the captain or the pilot, and then you take your compass and throw it overboard, yeah. then you are going to get off track. And seeing some of this stuff, it, it is not surprising, but it really uh, basically it begs the question because it does not see us uh, as sinful human beings. And, and uh, again, it does not see the fact that that um, we all need redemption. Yeah. You know, we all fall short, but we are individuals, and we're all uh, called to account. Yes, yes. That's a good point, going back to the Marxist school of thought that really kind of divides people and also likes the idea of the collective rather than the individual. You know, something else, this Reverend Althea Spencer Miller, who I guess is heading up this LMX, one of the stories about her quoted her as saying that God was there in the seeds of the movement John Wesley started, and she added, we are its queer, strange fruit. What do you think John Wesley would have had to say about that? <laughs> well, we know exactly what he would have had to say <laughs> is if she had included herself in the Wesleyan movement very soon, she would have found out that John Wesley would have excluded her yeah. from the Wesleyan uh, movement. Yeah. You know, John would not have wanted uh, her to be associated with it in, in any uh, regard. And also, too, it, it's uh, one thing that jumped out at me was a, a quote when she was talking about the Holy Spirit is driving our decision. Um, to launch the LMX, uh, LMX at this moment, and we are following her call. Hmm. Well, the Holy Spirit is is uh, is a hymn, yep. and uh, the <sighs> fact that she again is is uh, putting that on on there uh, does not surprise me. It it uh, kind of harks back to something that happened in the early 1990s, uh, the Reimagining Conference, when basically you had a, a group of Methodists and, and Presbyterians, liberal Presbyterians who uh, came up with the idea of goddess worship. Yes. Uh, worshiping the goddess Sophia. I remember. And then, yeah, we had done kind of extensive uh, study of that. And then it branched out to not just uh, Sophia, but other goddesses as well. And when you actually looked at what some of the speakers uh, were talking about, they were talking about how basically opening, uh, opening up sexual practice to all kinds of people to include those with animals. Oh. Now, Janet, uh, yeah, and, and uh, it is just so, so far off the mark. That is sick. And oh. It really is. Yeah. I, and you know what? This Everything old is new again. It's just amazing to see this kind of paganism and this old uh, Marxist ideology coming back in our own day when it's been so roundly debunked and diffused over the years. People have done a great job like you in doing uh, Christian apologetics and, and showing people why it's completely unbiblical. But again, this harkens back to the whole issue of what's going on in the United Methodist Church. We're going to talk more with Alan O. Morris when we come back on Janet Meffer today. Don't go away. This is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, tell us what Liberty HealthShare is all about. Well, Liberty HealthShare is a network of men, women, and children all across this country who voluntarily share medical bills with one another. And we do so without the advent of any kind of government program or third-party insurance. We're voluntarily sharing medical bills with one another. 
It's what you would normally do with people whenever you had a situation that was unexpected and unaffordable. It'd be your friends and family and community that you would turn to. So we're a group of people sharing each other's medical bills with one another. How does Liberty HealthShare respect your conscience as a Christian? Well, as Christians, we are very much pro-life. And as an organization, we respect that as well. So you can be rest assured that if you are a part of Liberty HealthShare, none of your share amounts are going towards things that would violate your conscience. So we would never contribute or share money in something that would result in the end of an abortion or or go towards an abortifacient drug, that's not who we are at all because we know that's not who you are at all. Is Liberty HealthShare affordable? Well, a lot of people seem to think so, uh, and that's a big part of uh, what we're about. We feel that it's immoral to add expense or to uh, have backdoor pricing on a lot of health care bills. And so with Liberty HealthShare, we've done all that we can do to make the Christian tradition of health care sharing available and affordable to all. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or their phone number is 855-585-4237. That's 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. It really is true that when you leave the foundation of God's holy word, anything can happen. And it seems to be that anything can happen in this Liberation Methodist connection. It's the new denomination that is spun off from the United Methodist Church in light of all of the discussions that have been going on about sexuality and the LGBT agenda. Alan O'Morris is with us. He is the executive director of Concerned Methodists. Alan Let's talk a little bit about where the United Methodist Church is right now, because I know COVID-19 got in the way of your 2020 conference. But where do things stand right now on splitting and on the whole issue of sexuality? Bring us up to speed a little bit on on everything that's been going on with the UMC and, and where you think everything is headed right now. Well, uh, I can answer your last uh, question early on when, where I think everything is headed. And I think that Going into the general conference uh, starting August uh, 29th in Minneapolis, it's going to be headed into turmoil and chaos. Mm. And and uh, even though they're uh, going into the 2019 general conference, and uh, there was a, a big uh, battle that was fought, but fortunately the traditional plan won out, then uh, we foresaw uh, different plans that were proposed then, but the traditional plan did win out, thankfully. Yes. But uh, since then, though, uh, people from both sides, leaders from both sides, have recognized that we cannot continue this fighting uh, forever. Mm -hmm. And so they came together and formed what was called a a, a protocol to uh, basically divide up the United Methodist Church. And, and uh, that, that has several provisions. Uh, I'll go through some of them, but I will say up front that we do not agree with this. But uh, this is one of the plans going into general conference. Okay. But uh, one is that there's going to be a post-separation uh, of the United Methodist Church. The liberals will basically... Uh, keep the uh, name of the Methodist Church, and evangelicals will be free to leave. Uh, they can do so on a conference basis. 
uh, you know, by uh, a vote of 57 percent. The conferences overseas will be able to to do so, but they have to have a, a supermajority of 66 percent, two thirds. And then uh, individual churches uh, can leave the United Methodist Church if they choose to. And we're working with one or two churches right now. They're in the process of doing that. Wow. And then uh, there will be a, a division of some of the assets or about $120 million in liquid assets. It will stay with the uh, United Methodist Church. And then $25 million will be given to the evangelical or the traditional uh, wing that will be splitting off and, and forming another Methodist church. Oh my. And so uh, each uh, conference can choose uh, which branch they want to be aligned with. As I said, we do not support this, but that is one of the plans that's on the table right now. Uh, I predict going into general conference, as I said, it will be a, a Donnybrook, and hmm. then uh, it will be uh, anybody's guess as to what will come out in the end. I think something like this may result, but as I said, uh, we you know we don't support that. No, and and why do the liberals get to keep the name? Why do the evangelicals always have to be the one to leave? That seems to be the the norm when you have you know all this turmoil in some of these mainline denominations. It's always the people who want to stand on the foundation of the Bible who end up seeming to leave. Well, and that's exactly our point. I mean, we, uh, and that was one point that we very, very much oppose uh, because uh, we have monitored this battle for about the last 30 years and, and uh, starting, and we have won the battle every four years. You know, every four years we have a, a worldwide meeting called the General Conference where de- delegates come from all over the world. It lasts for about 12 days and then they decide these issues. But always the other side tries to overturn our stand against homosexual practice. Mm. And uh, I've seen the vote uh, against as high as 82 percent and the lowest prior to the 2019 General Conference. But the lowest vote was 61 percent you know, mm. in support of traditional marriage. That's that's a hefty majority. I mean, it really is. And and just to refresh people's memories, in 2019, that was when the delegates, as you mentioned, this plan, you know, what went down in 2019, the delegates had voted against allowing the United Methodist Church to ordain LGBT clergy or to perform same-sex marriages. So that was a big win, but there was a lot of screaming and yelling from the liberals after that. One thing I had read, Alan, that I wanted to ask you about is I had read in one of the more uh, liberal um, religious news service uh, stories that this November 5th statement came out from the United Methodist bishops in Africa saying they intend to make their own choices regarding the church's future. Now, I know previously the traditionalists in the United States were very much in alignment with the African United Methodists on the issue of marriage and sexuality and ordination and all the rest of it. Does that indicate any sort of split between the African bishops and the traditionalists in the United States? Or or how do you read that whole statement that came out. Right. Well, I read it in, in one of two ways. First of all, some of the bishops, and, and you know, we know that the liberals uh, tried, you know, they're very adept at doing this, at basically just uh, doing what they can to win other people over, you know, by money or favor or whatever. And uh, we do believe that possibly some of the African bishops may have been influenced, you know, in some ways like that. But the average African is very much uh, against this type of practice. It is just so outside of their norm. So we know that there is, uh, uh, that there may be a, a, 
a, a uh, split, a very small uh, separation between some of the African bishops and the traditionalists. But also, too, we know that there is a, a, a split between some of the bishops and their own people. You know, with this having said, been said, when we're talking about the bishops, uh, the majority of the bishops in the United States support the LGBTQ uh, agenda. Hmm. Yeah, it's it, and it's really a shame. Yeah, it is. It is, but that's kind of that's kind of the thing that's going on in other parts of you know the church world, the Protestant church world, the evangelical churches are wrestling with this. You have this problem in the Presbyterian Church in America, which has been a conservative denomination, and they they have all kinds of problems with the LGBT issue. And and I mean, this goes back as you said, Alan, so so well. It's about the Bible, and and you just wonder why we keep seeing this kind of problem again and again and again. After all of these years that you've spent on renewal and trying to call United Methodists back to God's word, what would you say to the people in your denomination who have drifted away from the Bible? Well, really, I would start exactly with with that, that uh, God has not changed. His standards do not change. And uh, one of the several of the books that I have authored includes a section on the the deaths, uh, the last words of people who are Christians and who are not Christians. And it's very stark whenever uh, people are dying without Christ, they're dying in sin. And so, uh, you know, really what we need in the Methodist Church more than anything else is revival. What we need is, uh, and I have said this in one of the books that I had authored called At the Crossroads, and uh, we, we raised the point. Uh, we say it pretty hard. That could it be that some uh, United Methodist lay people will be going to hell? And then uh, do we believe that some United Methodist pastors will be going to hell? And then do we believe that some United Methodist bishops are going to hell? And, you know, we say it very hard, but, you know, this is something that needs to be said. Yeah. And then we answer the question, yes, we do. Uh, just in looking at the pronouncements and the actions, that's what we see. But what needs to happen is every single person needs to recognize that we're all sinners, we're all flawed, and that we do not have an accurate uh, view of, of uh, God's holiness. Yes. And we all need to repent, and we need to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ yes. as Lord and Savior. Yes, well, and you go back to the original Methodists, obviously, and it was all about holiness. I mean, I, just imagine what the Wesleys would think, as we mentioned before, if they could be, you know, in our own day in the flesh back on earth and see what's going on in the Methodist name. I mean, that that's part and parcel of revival, isn't it? Bringing, you know, people back to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, belief in the gospel, and a pursuit of holiness. That That's the normal Christian life. Well, it is, and and uh, if you go back to the Wesleys, they were big, very big on accountability. Yes, is uh, you know they would expect you attend to attend a class meeting once a week, and you could you could be asked the hard questions. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, it's just important for people to pray for you and the rest of the Christians who are still there in the United Methodist Church, trying to pray and work for renewal. And if the church does split, um, then you continue to be faithful to the Lord, obviously. But we'll keep a close eye on what's going on, Alan. Appreciate everything you do. You can check out the Concerned Methodist webpage at cmpage.org. Alan Morris with us. Alan, God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us and giving us all the scoop on the United United Methodist Church today. Well, thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much. God bless you, Alan. And we appreciate your listening to Janet Meffer today, as we do every day. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.